Welcome to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. Joined as always with uh, my good buddy John Marcus. How are you doing, John? I'm good. I'm caffeinated and I'm sharp as a knife. So watch out. We're going to cut through some BS today. Per- perfect. You're going to make up for me, who is uh, jet lagged from uh, my trip to Europe and woke up at four in the morning this morning. So I am. But I'm pumped because uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've we've got to chat and do one of these nice little podcasts and, as you like to say, give the people what they want. So we're going to jump right in and on this episode, we're going to talk about data. So, and particularly when and how to use data effectively, right? So our sport is one that's kind of interesting and cool is that we have all this objective data in the terms of times run and splits taken and all this good stuff, distance thrown or distance run, volume and all this stuff. But it's So it's really easy to have, but what do you do with it? What matters and does it cause functional change? It's kind of what we're going to get at after. And, you know, John, um, proceeding going live on this, you brought up the interesting development of how we use splits which I'm going to let you start off with because I think it's a spot-on illustration of how our ability to use data changes as we evolve as coaches and athletes. Yeah, Steve and I were talking before we went online here and, uh, you know, high school cross-country season starting and so many new athletes will be out there. So many first-time runners will be here trying to now be competitive with their running and how does a coach you know, wrap an athlete's head around this thing called cross-country training. And a lot of times it's with paces. And, you know, either you do a time trial or do you some type of, you know, uh, test effort to see where an athlete's at. And then based off that, you give them certain paces, paces for their long run, their recovery runs, their, you know, tempo workouts, their VO2 workouts, whatever, you know, uh, however you break that down. And you teach the athlete these different paces have a different stimulus and we want to do different paces at different time during the week in preparation for a race, ultimately so you can get a faster race pace by the end of the season. And I feel like having been a high school cross-country coach in, um, in my early coaching days and forced to educate an athlete quickly on those things, that was the kind of golden calf that was, okay, these paces are important because we can control them, track them, you can digest them you can check them your watch every 200 400 meters mile whatever the repeats are and know that you're on task to get better but then as you start to evolve and you start to get older or you start to get more mature with your you know running and racing you know the paces aren't all they've ever cracked up to be they're still important but it's kind of like, as I was telling to Steve, it's, it's a different level of or layering of importance with other feedback mechanisms based on, you know, how the body's feeling, how the athlete's doing, you know, did they feel like they had a good night's sleep? Are they stressed out? I mean, you're bringing a bunch of other integration into this that then impacts what pace you're going to run that day. And sometimes... I've had many times where I've assigned a pace to an athlete for a workout. There's an older athlete now who has like five, ten years of running and racing experience behind them. I say, oh, yeah, I run this. And they felt great, and they crushed it, and they just ran by feel, you know, and they ran five, ten seconds per mile faster for a tempo run because, man, coach, I felt awesome. Or 
for a reason they couldn't accomplish that objective at that pace because it was humidity was 75% or they were just drained from travel the previous night or something and they had to back it off but then they felt like they failed the workout because they still got a good effort of a six mile tempo run in but it was at five seconds, ten seconds per mile slower than what I arbitrarily assigned them. So, you know, it, I told Steve beforehand, it's kind of like the difference between the enlightenment of a child and the enlightenment of a Buddha. The enlightenment of a child is an enlightenment of innocence. They don't know anything better than just being innocent to the world and the world's a beautiful place. But the enlightenment of a Buddha has a little bit more depth to it because they know what suffering is. And despite all that, they've found that enlightenment. And that's what Steve and I are going to try to get at here is, when, where, and how do you put all the importance on pace prescription or certain data sets? And then when do you get that more of emotional component where you're checking in and seeing how the athlete's feeling or how they're looking in warm-up? What, what does their drill speed look like or stride speeds? Like how long are their contact time at the ground? Like those subtle arts of coaching, Steve and I are going to try to uh, dissect here and knowing when, where to really... Uh, prize the data that you are trying to, you know, aim at recording, and when it's sometimes just throw it out the window, man, and just coach the athlete in front of you. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because you know both of us coming from having coached high school athletes and all that stuff. I think the coaching development model of uh, how we use splits is is fascinating in the sense that. Most of us, when we get our start, we pick up a book like Daniel's Running Formula or uh, something similar. Yeah. And, and, and it's like it gives you exactly what splits to run for you know, your tempo work, your reps, and your stuff like that. And it's, it's brilliant for that, right? Um, but as we evolve as coaches, most of the time we break away from that mathematical approach and go to what what I'd say is more abstract approach where we're paying attention to the things that that you mentioned in terms of looking at the overall global picture of how the athlete is doing and and uh and all that good stuff versus the strict mathematical approach and you know as I was saying to you earlier is if someone looked at me coaching now versus let's say five six years ago or longer ago uh, it goes by pretty quick but when I first started getting into coaching they might say well you do less as a coach now meaning I don't write up these elaborate prescriptions for paces to run on every single workout and I don't track like the percentage of of um the percentage of you know running per week we're doing in each each kind of category to track. And although I think that was great for my development as a coach, I think it's something that you need to understand, but then gradually move away from to get this more holistic viewpoint. It's it's kind of on par with the development of an athlete too. You know, young coaches it's like, oof, how do I do this? How do I make sure people get in shape? Like I'm famous for my tagline, it's time to get in shape. You know, it's always time to get in shape. Now, how you approach that differs, and there are certain, um, you know, principles and things you need to integrate in a, you know, comprehensive and intelligent training plan to make that come to fruition. But yeah, Steve's exactly right. Like, the difference between the coaching now for myself and you know, ten years ago when I first started coaching is it, it is not as detailed in prescribing exact dosages. It's more of 
looking and feeling and knowing where the athlete's been, where they're going, and trying to understand like how does today's session fit into the more you know, long-term vision about, okay, we're two months away from the peak race or a year out from the peak, you know, race. What is it, what are we really doing here? Are we sacrificing some intermediate, you know, um, excitement for hitting us some fast splits in a workout session to then say, oh, well, you ran these splits, so that means you're going to be able to race this next week. Or are we saying, well, this is going to build on all the work that we did beforehand to help you get faster and faster, um, you know, in the long term. Like a good example of this is a, uh, you know, a 1,500-meter woman that I, I work with, a post-collegiate Anna Connor, who when she, we first started working together two years ago, she was a 216, 800-meter runner and 440, 1,500-meter runner. Last year she ran 206 and 414 in two years' time. And, you know, the training doesn't look anything like it looked the previous year or doesn't look like it looked – or. I mean, you can't predict what we're going to do this year based on what we did when I first started working on it two years ago because she's evolved, she's changed. I mean, you know, she's just getting back into training after a little bit of layoff with eyes on trying to qualify in Olympic trials in the 15. And, you know, now we're doing a lot of stairs and hill repeats here to start off her introduction in her general prep phase versus last year was a lot more tempo runs and threshold runs because that was what she needed. And so knowing her and looking back at her training logs, we can say, well, okay, this and that. And I mean, it's important stuff to get those thresholds runs in and this and, and all that in the beginning. But now we're just saying, well, we need to break you down and build you back up from a speed power, but also aerobic standpoint, how we best accomplish that stairs and hills. It's nice because you can't track stairs and hills. All you can know is you're running a hard effort and you're now 14, 206, you know, middle distance runner. So a hard effort for you is going to be pretty good. So if you're working hard right now, you don't have to worry you're working hard enough because you are, because you're already pretty darn good. And when you try and get that 2% improvement, that's where it's like, okay, this is where we need to take a step back and know for her, splits aren't the most important thing right now because they're going to become important later down the road when we're trying to do speed development. And now we're tracking, okay, how fast is she doing her 30-meter flies or her you know, 150 meter accelerations where, you know, how fast are those? And those like tenths of a second become bigger deals than the tens of second that the tempo runs, you know, used to be. Or, you know, we couple that with say some of the collegiate athletes who are, you know, relatively young and don't know what these paces are and how important it is to say back off on the recovery run and make sure your recovery run is like no faster than seven minute pace for a guy or no faster than eight minute pace for a female. And it's like, you got to put a pace regulation on them so they don't overrun that and then get tired. So it's really about your history with the athlete and the knowledge you have when and where you execute that data set. But as you get more, you know, become more of a craftsman or craftswoman with your craft of coaching, you start to understand what's really, really important to you. And I know some people, you know, that VO2 max type stimulus is super duper important. And those paces, we need to slow those come down and we need to do this, we need to do that. Or for some other coaches, the rep of the pace is not the most important thing, but it's the length of time that the recovery interval is for a certain session. So maybe in, you're doing, you know, repeat miles and, you know, you try and do them at six minute pace, but if you're tracking, oh, well, if you can do them at six-minute pace with only 60 seconds rest, that means you're a lot fitter than if you can do them with three minutes rest. So it, it's all about attuning what, what has value, but ultimately 
what's going to make the athlete a lot better than they previous, previously were. And the thing I hate, or I shouldn't say hate, but I am disappointed hearing the most is coaches who say, oh, well, this worked for you in the past, two or three years ago. So we're just going to do this again because this training plan or this, this worked for you before and it got you fit. Yeah. I mean, last time I checked, it's like you repeat a you know, certain training prescription based off of where an athlete was two, three years ago. Well, they're a whole different athlete, whether they're a lot more stronger and been consistent, they're older, or they had a long layoff. Like You just can't say, oh, we're just going to do the same thing because it worked before. And so many times we want to retreat to that especially if an athlete's had like an up and down, you know, last couple years or months and you're like, whoa, 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 we know this works. So we're just going to do that. But it's like that to me, that's the sign of the lazier coach is defaulting rather than doing like Steve and I do, where now it looks like we're doing less, but we're actually just problem solving and processing more. Exactly. No, I, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is, is defaulting to what worked in the past because, uh, well, I like to look at it as, in two different things is like, the past gives us clues, but it doesn't give us prescriptions, right? So it's just like it's just like if we went and looked at stock performances and said, well, in the past, you know, this did this. So we're just going to assume it does the same thing. Well, it, it doesn't react the same way because the environment's different, right? And the same, is, the same is true with people. Like when you're doing training, like when we're prescribing training and you're doing, doing workouts, the goal is to fundamentally change you as a person, okay? It's, if we look at it like from a physiological standpoint, it might be to you know, fundamentally increase your muscle fiber size or your mitochondria density or even mentally, like to be able to increase your focus, your attention, or change what you pay attention to in a race. Like we're doing these fundamental changes. So if, if that worked for you a year ago or two years or three years ago, that's great, but that worked for the person who was that person three years ago. And you've changed based on what you've done, right? So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when, when people kind of default mode to that. And I think when you look at using data like splits or whatever you want to call it is, I think you made a good point of, of what you need to pay attention to is whether you're concerned with the external versus the internal part of it. So you mentioned Anna, uh, Anna's 1,500-meter training and how maybe later in the year when she's doing some flying, flying sprint work that, well, then that, that feedback matters, right? Well, then the external cue of how fast she's running gives you valuable data. So when I look at athletes, I look at and deciding paces, I say, all right, are we more concerned about you hitting the actual pace? Like if I say you have 400 at 59 seconds, does hitting 59 seconds matter more? Or does getting the internal feeling and the internal uh, stresses right uh, matter more? Meaning that, hey, if you just, if I got a college athlete who just crammed for a test and uh, I broke up with his girlfriend and he comes in and he's super, his stress response is through the roof and now running 59 second pace feels, or running 63 seconds feels like 59 seconds internally in terms of stress. Well, I'm okay with 63 seconds, right? Because it's that 
that internal stress is what what I want, which you can tell from some of the the things mentioned earlier in terms of looking at you know foot contact or how they're popping off the ground or how they look in terms of posture and body movement and all that stuff, or is it the external that matters in the sense that you know what we really need to work on this rhythm of running of what it feels like to click off. 30 second 200s and I really want you to ingrain that well then I might say hey hit 30 no matter what because we want the mechanics of running 30 so so the point is is as a coach I think as you evolve in in understanding what these splits or data tell you is it's putting them in the right place in terms of what what is the feedback you're looking for and then what does that feedback tell you Right, and you just have to figure out what what data sets are really important to you. I mean, you know, a lot of people hyper-assess about weight. You know, it's that taboo issue in distance running, you know, like, oh, wait, 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 wait. You got to be skinny. You got to be light to run faster. You're more efficient. You know, that's a yes and no, like everything. I mean, yeah, it's physics. You know, it takes less energy to move a lighter mass, but what's the body composition like? Like, what percentage of it's muscle, what percentage is fat. You know, you might lose weight, but if you're losing five pounds of muscle and you don't have any, like, fat to spare and you stop eating as much or you're running more and then you're eating that muscle tissue, well, that's you're also generating the ability for your body to recover quickly because now you don't have as much testosterone or HGH or other things floating around your body because you, now you have less muscle mass. That not a good idea, but you but you lost five pounds, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I tell people you have to look deeper. Sometimes you have to understand like the superficial numbers require a little deeper analysis and introspection where it's like weight's important, but body composition is more important. I'd rather have my runners gain a pound but lose five pounds of fat and shift that five pounds of fat into six pounds of muscle that then allows them to fire a lot more quickly, quickly, rapidly, consistently throughout their running, you know, prep work. Or it's like, is miles per week a big deal? I mean, miles per week or kilometers per week, I don't care. Like, I really don't track miles. I track minutes because to me, the body knows what time is. We have, you know, an internal mechanism that tracks time. So, you know, that's just more familiar to us. But I don't sit here and go, well, we need to get in for you, you know, 10 hours of running a week or else. That's not good. I mean, it's it's like anything else. There's a range. I always give athletes that I work with a range. Like a recovery run will be a range of, depending on your, you know, background, anywhere from like 45 to 75 minutes. And you get to pick, like, am I feeling really crummy today? Then I'm just going to slog through 45 minutes and be done. Or maybe I'm pressed for time and I only have an hour to run, so I'm going to give you 45 minutes. But if you get out on the trail, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'll just go run and have fun and, you know, just recover and chat up with my friends. And, oh, oh it's 76 minutes for the run today. Not a big deal. But you get recovered for the next session. That's all that matters. Not... How much did you get the prescription in that was delegated to you today? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a fantastic point because, like, it, the point you're illustrating is that mileage isn't the goal. Like, hitting that number isn't the goal. 
the goal is do what you need to do on that day to accomplish the goal that is set out for that workout or run or whatever it is, right? So similar to you, like I will, I, I track mileage, but when I calculate mileage up, it's, or for instance, when I write training for someone who I'm coaching who's not here, for example, like I write every individual day on what we're trying to do. And then at the end, I'll be like, oh, well, it comes out to roughly this mileage. So we're going to be roughly this mileage this week, right? It's not done the opposite way around where it's like we need to hit X. So I'm going to fill in all these days to hit X mileage, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's a subtle shift. And I think that shift is important because it's like you said, like whether it's weight, whether it's mileage, whether it's, it's uh, you know, paces – it's really easy to obsess over like singular numbers, right? Yes. Because yeah. it's like, oh, like I weigh 140 pounds. Like I know that. That gives me instant this nice chunk of a number to keep. So um, it gives right. something. Or I only me. run well when I run 50 miles a week or I only run well when I run 70 miles a week. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the thing is like it, we need to get away from like having a singular focus on these easy chunkable numbers that that make sense it's why vo2 max for a long time became this cool thing because it was an easy simple number right mm -hmm. yeah. but you know when i look at data like weight for example like i don't track anybody's weight um on our team or anybody's weight on i don't know i don't know how how much any of the post collegiates I coach weigh? Like not a single one of them. So yeah, me uh, neither. I have no clue. I have no idea. <laughs> um, which is kind of funny to me because I, you know, as you and I both know I've I've been in programs that have been obsessed about like hyper obsessed, uh, hyper about obsessed weight. about yes. weight, right? Yes. So <laughs> so maybe that's why I don't I don't I don't care at all about it. But I think it's important because like. The data that you have, the numbers that you get, the, the things you have to m ask yourself are like, does it bring actionable change and does it mm -hmm. influence the coaching decision? And if it doesn't, then you don't need to be taking it. Right. Yeah, and that's, I think, that's the key thing you point out here, Steve, actionable change. Like, with this data, can we then say, all right, this is what we now need to do to make you better? And for me... Like from a cross-country perspective, I put a lot of stock early on into someone's, you know, threshold capacity. And I define threshold pace as your 15K race pace, so like nine-mile race pace. Like if you went out and just ran a nine-mile road race, what would that pace be? That if you can get that thing faster over the course of two, three, you know, adaptation cycles with either broken threshold work or steady progressive threshold work, then we know you're going to get a whole lot stronger and can handle a cross-country race that's running on grass, up and down hills, this and that, like we're not on a track. So you need to be able to have a good, you know, aerobic exchange while running at this critical race pace speed, but also to be able to cover as you're running. And so I've always put a lot of stock into that. Now that emphasis changes when you get to track and, you know, we're then trying to hone on your speed work a little bit more or your, you know, you know, your VVO2 max, that velocity of VO2 max type thing, like, what does that look like? So you have to know when and where your, your data is important and how it changes, but it's just, it's one, one measure of a, 
of an ecosystem. Um, you know, it's not like, like being the Steve's point earlier, we don't say, okay, I'm going to get 60,000 miles on my car this year. So in order to do that, I have to drive these many miles per day. So, and I'm going to, you know, get this in per week. And so you don't sit here and say, oh, well, I have to get an extra, you know, 20 miles on my car this week. And I'm just going to go drive around town and get an extra 20 miles on my car so I can get my 60,000 miles on my car. No, you don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it leads us down the wrong path. And the right path is actual items about how to get better. And so I encourage everyone to think about that as you move forward with your training. Like, yes, you want to teach. And paces early on, you know, having athletes be aware of their weight in a form of, like, for the young high school kid not to eat a pizza or candy or pop, you know, that's important too. But it's like, what, what's the teaching tool that this data set is empowering you, the coach, with? And then also, too, and more importantly, empowering the athlete with to make that actual change moving forward. Exactly. No, exactly. I like the car example. But, I mean, that, that's kind of what it comes down to is, like, and don't get me wrong. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a data geek. Like, I grew up, not surprisingly, like, you know, loving baseball and tracking baseball stats and stuff like that. So it's cool stuff to me, but, like, you know, um, when it when it comes down to it, I look at stuff and I'm like, well, does this actually mean anything? And does this actually actually do anything and influence what I do? And sometimes there's a ton of data that I've collected that doesn't do it. And yeah, it's, it sometimes sucks to sit there and be like, well, you know what? I collected all this. Does it, it doesn't mean much, but at least I know it doesn't mean much or influence my coaching as much as I thought it would. Right. So. I think that's huge. As I said, like early on in my coaching, I used to break down my own training log into like different zones so I could get percentage of how much I was spending in each time in each zone. And it gave some really cool looking graphs. Yeah, that did. <laughs> right? So I got some sweet looking graphs, but it didn't, it didn't change or it didn't influence like my training or my, my, my performance at all. So in the end, like if I'm wasting that time when I could, spend it over in something else problem solving in a different way then it's it's a waste you know and the the thing I like to point out is that as you coach and I know we both say this a lot but I think it's important as younger coaches go through these processes as as you coach it becomes more about this abstract by feel thing and it does and it's like one of the points you made offline before we got into this is workout comparison, right? So sometimes you can use this data to compare workouts and say like, well, you know, I ran this workout faster than I did at this time last year, so I should be faster. And it doesn't always work that way, right? Um, And and there's this, what I've noticed, especially over the last couple years, is instead of using workout data to tell me, hey, you're going to run fast, um, it's just you just get this feeling of almost flow as a coach like oh this athlete's clicking it off and clicking on all cylinders and they're going to run fast and like this might sound really weird but athletes like coach from afar and don't even see I can get that same feeling of like man they, they're telling me they're hitting everything yeah. and they're, they're feeling good doing it and you know they're going to they're going to run well. I mean, a great example from this weekend is uh, both Sarah Hall and Neely Spence went second and fourth at Falmouth. 
first and second Americans. And, you know, going into that race based on just how they both had been telling me how they've been doing on email and text and phone conversation, I was like, man, they're both in like, they're in a groove. Yeah. Like they're just in a groove. I don't, I don't care what the workouts say. Like they're just in a groove. And that would, that's more important than me looking back at, you know, six months ago and saying, well, you know what, Sarah ran this 12 mile tempo run at this pace, but six months ago she ran it at this pace. So I guess she's in better shape. Like 10 years ago, I would have done that. But now, no, I, you know. <laughs> and as the science guy, as the science running guy, it warms my heart to hear that, Steve, because it's so much of our sport is about momentum. And, you know, it's like once an athlete's in a flow of momentum and even in a, in a coaches, like people are just kind of like clicking and crushing it off. Like, and I'm going to testify too. Like, I, we had, I had a result from a, a young lady, Camelia Mayfield, who, you know, ran this event called the Mount Ashton Hill Climb in Southern Oregon this weekend, which is 13.3 miles with about over 6,000 feet of elevation gain. And she ran 207, two hours and seven minutes, and, you know, broke the course record by like two minutes. And she just moved from Portland to Bend, and kind of the last couple days were stressful moving, you know, two hours away, three and a half hours away from Portland. And she didn't run a couple days, and she was like, calls me up, says, Coach, you think I'm ready to, to run well at this race? I go, Cam, you've been in such a groove since you got back, you know, from Africa after she graduated in late June. Like, her July was great. Early August was awesome. I go, you're ready to crush it. Don't worry about it. Like, it's okay you had to take two days off because you moved. You know, I get it. And sure enough, like, she just demolished that sucker. And it's so funny that we take that for granted versus, you know, that, that flow state in coaching and being an athlete and momentum is hypercritical, but yet we can't scientifically determine how to create that flow state. We can't say, well, here's the, here's the prescription, here's the recipe, here's how we'll guarantee the flow state we'll make. And so it's like, you know, the, the difference between an artistic approach and kind of that much more rigid approach. But when you get those flow states, you have those athletes that just pop one off, like Sarah and Neely, like that was fantastic to see, Steve. Like kudos to them and you for you know, embracing that. But I think it's, again, it's tough because it's an athlete first approach where you're really playing. It's like a jazz session. It's an impromptu, you know, you know, improv jazz session where you're playing off the other person and you don't really know what the next note's going to be, but you have a good sense about what it's going to be versus a very rigid, you know, kind of, uh, piece where it's like you have to play this chord and this note and it's a symphony and it's like if you don't play you get this death stare type type eye and and it's much more exciting to have that kind of improv happen and that flow happen and see where that can take someone because that's what athletics is about we don't know the limits of each human each person each athlete's potential and we try to limit them and say well you know, you ran this workout and you can only run, you know, 18 minutes for 5K based on the workouts you've been doing. Well, then we've limited them from maybe running 17.30 for that 5K and getting really competitive. And sometimes we have to understand as a coach, you know, when the advice or when the encouragement we're giving an athlete based off the feedback of their preparation is motivating them to do better and motivating them to be more competitive or hindering them and making them worry about how competitive they really can be based off all the work you've 
you that you've seen them done and what your perception and experience tells you that that translates to exactly no i mean that's that's a brilliant point i think i think on self limiting i mean it's 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 we have to be careful of what mindset we ingrain in in people i mean there's there's some awesome research i think i sent you some earlier about about mindsets and how even just subtle subtle hints of manipulations of how people view their world around them influence their behaviors tremendously. So it can be incredibly dangerous as a coach to set up this self-limiting um, idea by saying, well, you know, your workouts indicate X. Well, now they think they can only do X, right? And you and I both know, I mean, I could sit here and give you examples of, of people who have been at world championships who have run really... <laughs> really, really bad workouts, like not impressive workouts at all, but have run world-class times, right? And if, if you just showed me those workouts, I'd be like, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's someone who's not going to run that fast. Like they're, they're a, a NCAA college-level runner, and they're running world-class times off workouts, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. you know, and I've seen the opposite, like incredible workouts where they didn't put it you know, it didn't correlate. So we have to be careful about like setting these mindsets and limitations um, on athletes, especially. But you know, the the thing about the analogy with the jazz and improv is really good, and I like that. And I I think one of the things that makes it more difficult is it's a scarier proposition, right? It's scarier to think like all right, well, here's our kind of general overall plan of what we're doing, but, you know, we might go this way, we might go that way, we're going to see how you react, and then we'll make this call, and we're just going to kind of go with the flow and see where it takes it. Like, that's that's so much scarier than saying, you know what, I sat down all day Saturday, I put together a perfect periodization plan and model, and we're going to do this to the T. Here's our plan. We're going to do it like we're going to kill it and it, like that's a safer route to do because it's like you have this fallback plan to fall back like this is what the plan says so we're going to do it when you take this improv approach like you don't have that fallback so it's right. yeah. it's it's a trickier thing and it almost takes more confidence as a coach to go that route much more it takes more it takes a deeper understanding and skill set i mean i sit here and like you do every sunday is you know is coaches, you know, training update day. And we sit here and we plan out the next training cycles and, you know, plan out based off the feedback we got from the athletes, you know, how to better prep them for the next test ahead. But yet it's um, one of those things where it's like, it's less control to the coach saying you're going to do exactly what's here and do a perfect workout. And the perfect workout is if you hit the splits that I write perfectly versus you know, you got to be able to make those adjustments in the moment and understand, well, okay, you're not really feeling good today. We, you know, you, you know, on the warm up, you looked really flat on your strides and we had the speed workout plan. Like, Ooh, we're not going to get anything out of the speed work because your con- ground contact time was awful. And we're just going to dig you in a deeper hole. So, all right, we're going to readjust this thing and make this, this type of session, or maybe we'll just scrap it today and go, go, home and sleep and nap and hopefully you can get a neuromuscular reset for the next day or whatever you know that you have to have a plan but then you have to be willing to make those real-time adjustments in the face of the athlete in front of you now 
that's easy to do when you have a high-level athlete or a small group of high-level athletes. You can be much more attentive, right? Now, the college coach or the high school coach who has, you know, a big team or multiple levels, like if you've got 80 people off across country, you can't be that detailed in your approach by any stretch of the imagination. But what you can do is err on the side of caution, you know, and, be, and give the athletes, especially a younger athlete, the confidence that they're good at running. So if you tell them, hey, run this pace for your 800-meter repeats, and if you're feeling really good on the last one, you know, run this one, run it as fast as you can, let's see what you can do, that can then give them confidence to knock it out of the park. Like, it doesn't matter that you, the, the shift of the workout was a tempo session maybe for those repeat 800s, and then the last one was more like a race pace type simulation or race pace speed. What it did was it allowed and afforded the athlete confidence that they could do the bulk of the workloads asked and then, you know, run, and then see, just see how good they are. Because we have to remember is, we are training, but I, you know, I'm getting away from the word training and getting in more into the, the East Africans use, which is preparation. Like, are we, this is part of our preparation. Like, there's a running preparation component, which is the X's and O's of how fast, how far, whatever you run. But then you have a mental preparation component, strength conditioning preparation component, nutrition preparation component. So we got to think about preparation is a little bit more all-encompassing, and where you emphasize as a coach. The, the dominance of your preparation plan is where your athletes will be well prepared, but two, where you, you, you know, neglect is the area athletes will be, will demonstrate in the thorns of the competition environment. I remind athletes, we love to compete. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We want to be able to compete. I'm preparing you to compete at the level you want to compete at. You want to compete at the Olympic level, Olympic trials level, state level, varsity level, whatever. This is the demands that require you to be meet in order to compete at that level. We got to do it. And sometimes, like Steve said earlier, we'll be you know you can be very like okay hey, we'll, you know wishy washy or a little bit more accommodating rather than wishy washy. Sorry, a little bit more accommodating. The athletes say, oh, let's run this pace instead of that harder pace I had, or run less reps just because where we are. Or sometimes you have to be you know stern and say no. You say you want to run this level, this workout now. We got to get this done until you know you drop like otherwise we're not preparing you to be competitive so again if it sounds like steve and i are a little bit all over the place explaining this process you know we are because it's not a straightforward scientific process you know the main thing to understand is it's an athlete first process and that's even though it doesn't look as structured or scripted in in its execution it's a lot more thorough and a lot more you know um deeply intensive because you're taking all this feedback in and processing and problem solving in real time. And that's why it's very important like for Steve and I both to be there for the majority of workout sessions because that's where we get a lot of our feedback is not just from the data that the watch said, but the, the, the visual data we get from how someone's moving around the track, what's their overall enthusiasm or facial expressions or body you know, posture that day. You know, it's like you got to understand what, what are the things that are important to you. Like things that are important to me in a workout session aren't a split. It's a how someone's moving. In the weight room, it's not how much weight you're pushing. It's bar speed. If I see that bar speed getting slow and clunky, like I no, get, get, get layer the weight off. Like take five pounds off that bench. Take 10 pounds off that bench. Let's keep the bar speed fast so that central nervous system can go pop, 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 and we can get what we want out of it instead of like looking haggard just to 
bench two, two and a half or five pounds more because that's what I wrote was you were supposed to progress the load that you're benching off this workout day. No, no, no. But I mean, you're going to find those things that are important to you as you coach more and you're sensitive to it. But if you just want like a clean, cut and dry, cookie cutter, you know, prescription of workouts and this is the prescription that's going to get you successful, you know, that's just lazy coaching. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, I'm just, I'm giving the people what they want and that is just pure and simple lazy coaching so don't be that coach because everyone listening to this you know is listening to this for a reason and you guys are all better than that lazy coach <laughs> preach right um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a brilliant point on on, on all of that is uh, it's easy to fall into that trap of lazy coaching and you know on the, on the data thing tying this all back together hopefully in some weird random way we'll find Uh, a way to do it we always do yeah but but i think the point is like what you're talking about is is all this information is data right it might not be this easy quantifiable number of like this is a 60 second lap or this is 80 miles a week or this is how much you weigh right it's not that but the things you're talking about right how fast the bar looks to be moving right how poppy they are off the ground on when running and if they're staying on the ground too long, how, they're, how they walk, right? How they show up to practice and whether they're, they're, uh, they're slouched over and kind of in this fearful state or whether they're up and open and, and, and peppy and all that stuff. It's all data. Like even, even in the athletes I coach who, aren't, who I don't get to see much, right? So I can tell you, this might sound incredibly weird, but I can read the first sentence of several athletes' emails or texts to me and tell if the workout really went well or if it didn't go well just by the knowing them long enough to know their key descriptors and what those mean, right? Whether a workout said nice or whether it went well or nice or good or pretty good or whatever variable that is. And that, that's data for us, right? So it's all these different things, all this feedback you're getting is data. It's not just what does the watch or the split say. It's how, how did that, this come about and what is this person telling you? Right. Just because you can't put it in an Excel file doesn't mean it's valuable data. And, <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's the thing. You have to figure out what's valuable data to you as a coach based off the athlete or athletes or teams and the level of competency and um, ability of the athletes you're working with is. And, you know, again, just don't be that lazy coach. Don't be that lazy coach, please. I, I think everyone listening to this podcast is better than that. I mean, that's my one thing is, like, good coaching is time-consuming and it's challenging because... You never know. It's like life. You never know what to expect. You never know what the tide's going to bring in. But be adaptive. Be attentive. You know, be able to problem solve in real time. And I guarantee you, your athletes will be better. They'll be fitter. They'll be healthier. And they'll just like you more. (laughs) (laughs) That that sums it up. If nothing nothing else, your athletes will like you more if you actually pay attention to them. Noble concept. (laughs) It's incredibly noble. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that's a great point. It it brings it down to a very simple statement. It's like, 
it, it doesn't take all this high-tech gadgetry or, or um, you know, sabermetrics statistics stuff to, to get to do well at this sport or any sport, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about understanding what gives you actionable data and, and what that is. And for each athlete, for each condition, it's going to be different, right? So yep. um, that's, that's kind of sums it up. So There you go. Be there and be attentive. There you go. There you go. Don't be a lazy coach. So <laughs> we'll, we'll end with that, that profound message um, as we get over 45 minutes of talking. So thanks again, John. It was uh, a pleasure to get back on the, uh, on the podcast routine. Hopefully yeah. we can uh, get this going again. Yeah. Keep giving us, you know, ask us questions on Twitter. Keep sending Steve and I emails. I appreciate when you sent me an email or bumped into me and said, hey, why have you guys been lazy and not uh, putting the pod out on a consistent basis this summer? You know, we're, now that fall is back, cross country is back, we'll be a little bit more consistent with our podcasting, hopefully as you and your athletes are with your training, and uh, keep giving you what you want. That, that's right. I have to take uh, take fault for the lazy, lazy <laughs> podcasting, so don't, don't blame John. That was all me. He kept texting me, and I was like, well... I was in I was in Seattle for a while, and then I was in Switzerland for a while. And it, hey, it's it, a team approach, Steve. It's a team approach, <laughs> you know. So whatever success or failures you you have, I'll own as well. This is uh, this is a team approach. Per- so. Perfect, perfect. Well, thanks a lot. And as John said, feedback is appreciated. We get these topic ideas from what you guys want. So um, anything that's interesting, we'll talk about, as you guys can see. So thanks a lot, and uh, look forward to talking again next time.